Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 5, Episode 23, Overtaken by the Bogeyman. The Bogeyman is coming for you. The goblin, the sandman, the creature crawling in the night. Something on the edge, something between human and inhuman. These are the stories we tell to scare children into doing whatever mother wants them to do, and scare adults with what they might become if they let go of civilization. Although, as far as I can remember, bogeyman haven't actually been a thing in my life. I mean, I mean, obviously there weren't any actual goblins in my life, but, but more than that, there weren't actually stories of goblins or sandmen or anything else scary. No tall tales of creatures designed to scare me into line. Thanks, Mum. But bogeymen do seem to have been a feature of life in early India. And this week, we're going to spend time with a whole clan of them, in amongst the bogeymen, the models of how not to live, of what could happen to a people who let go of civilization. Only these ancient Indian bogeymen... They weren't just stories, they were real human beings. And even better, after a millennia of silence in the 10th century, we actually hear from them. And by some stroke of miraculous luck, this episode's set in the 10th century, so we're going to get a chance to hear the stories of the bogeymen and then hear from the bogeymen themselves. So, if you've got children that you want to scare into line or some moral lesson to teach and you're in need of a good traditional bogeyman to prove your point, then listen on. This episode will give you everything you need to know. Ready? Let's go. The Cambodias of the ancient past were monsters. Uh, By the way, specifically talking about how ancient people perceive them. There are a bunch of people going around today with the name Cambodge. A really cool name. We'll talk about it later. Okay. The Cambodias of the ancient past were monsters, at least in the sense that they were a a mixture of, of different things. They lived right on the edge of the Indian world in more ways than one. They had one foot inside Indian cultural life, right? They counted as amongst the 16 great houses of ancient India, the Mahajanapadas. They they ruled uh, North India when history began. So they're alongside the, these other houses, and most of these, these houses became great names of ancient India. Right. And they built the early great cities of India, and they were guests to Buddha and, and Mahavira and, and people like that. But of all of the 16 great houses, the Cambodias, they were the most remote. They lived far off to the west, beyond the hills of Gandhara, in the mountains at the extreme end of modern Pakistan, or or maybe beyond that. So their other foot was firmly outside of Indian cultural life. Although they're one of the 16 great houses, in, in language and in custom, they were foreigners, they were outsiders, they were barbarians. They rent around with this mlecher language, mlech, 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 right? Quite different to anything spoken by a civilised North Indian. And 
It wasn't just that they were like other Mletcher barbarian people. Actually, amongst the Mletcher people, three uh, of those groups of Mletchers were picked out as the worst, right? The most frightful, the most pitiless amongst the Mletchers. And those three were the Greeks, the Chinese, and the Cambodians. So these are really you know, thought of as monstrous, as scary, as a weird mix of normal Indian cultural life and something not only barbarian, but extremely barbarian. How had the Cambodians been created? Well, some said that they'd once been proper civilised folk, right? Kshatriyas, upper caste guys, but that they had been barred from the proper rituals or they'd stopped listening to Brahmins and that had dropped them from that high caste status and, and they'd, they'd become savages. And indeed, the law books seem to agree that if the Cambodians fit anywhere in the caste system, they fit in the lowest caste, right? no longer upper caste if they ever were. And they're going to have to be confined to the edge of any village that they happen to be lived in and all of the, the stuff that comes with being low caste. It changes in different periods in, in, in history, of course. Others said that no, the Cambodians weren't Kshatras. Instead, they came from the gift cow, from Nandi. She roared and she created the Cambodians along with some of the other Mletcher peoples. Anyway, they lived out there beyond the western limits of India, and they lived lives of barbarity. It's said that they shaved their heads completely, but that they let their beards grow unkempt, flowing down a bit like Bruce Willis who's let himself go. It said their skin was the colour of the rays of the sun, which I think means yellow. They said, it said that they, they lived in a, a slave society, that everyone was either uh, a slave or a master. And in many ways, they were the picture of everything that can go wrong with a society. Life there was nasty, brutish and short, or so go the stories. And they're useful stories. They're something that can be wheeled on stage during all sorts of arguments when you're making a moral point. Actually, let's see this story in use. Let's hear a few examples of the Cambodia bogeyman being wheeled on. So here's, um, here's a Buddhist text using the Cambodia as the epitome of evil. It's in an argument against the existence of God, or, or at least against the existence of an all-powerful creator God, a version of what keen philosophy students call the problem of evil. And here's the passage. It goes like this. Why does not Brahma set his creatures right? If his wide power no limits can restrain, why is his hand so rarely spread to bless? Why are his creatures all condemned to pain? Why does he not to all give happiness? Why do fraud, lies and ignorance prevail? Why triumphs falsehood, truth and justice fail? I count your Brahma among the unjust, who made a world in which to shelter wrong. Those men are counted pure who only kill, frogs, worms, bees, snakes or insects as they will. These are your savage customs which I hate, such as Cambodia hordes might emulate. This doesn't really have anything to do with reality, not the, the bit about Cambodia's anyway. What you think about the problem of evil, that's up to you. Saying that 
So Cambodia are these guys who eat uh, frogs, worms, bees, snakes, or insects. Eating bees seems to me pretty impractical. Uh, worms, worms, I can personally vouch for being pretty not nice, pretty unpalatable. I made mistakes as a as a child. Don't try it at home, kids. What about the rest? The the insect, the snake. Uh, the frog. Well, eating them is possible, but I think it's unlikely for people living where the Cambodians were living, right? Both in India and even more in Iran, right next to the Cambodia homeland, eating insects, frogs, and snakes was considered a, a pretty terrible thing to do. According to the the Zoroastrians in Iran at that time, such creepy crawly animals were evil. In ancient times, such people even kept a special snake-killing tool, right? not to eat the snakes, but just so that they could kill off the evil. These were definitely dirty, definitely things you you, you didn't eat. And in into modern period, actually, there was a yearly festival where everyone out for, went for a day killing these kind of creepy crawlies. So if the Cambodians really ate these things, they were going against the mage traditions in their region. Probably... No frog's legs for these fellows. Okay, here's a, another example of the bogeyman being wheeled on. This one is it's an argument against caste, comparing uh, people who think that they are better than anyone else to those filthy Cambodians and Greeks with their slaving ways. It goes like this. Still, the Brahmins think... Brahmins are the superior caste, the sons and offsprings of Brahma, born of his mouth, born of Brahma, created by Brahma, heirs of Brahma. What do you think, Asalanya? Have you heard that in, in Yona, that's Greece, and Cambodia, and other outlying countries, there are only two castes, masters and slaves, and that having been a master of one can become a slave, and that having been a slave, one can become a master? Yes, Master Gautama. So, what strength is there? Asalanya, what assurance when the Brahmins say Brahmins are the superior caste, the sons and offsprings of Brahma, born of his mouth, born of Brahma, created by Brahma, heirs of Brahma. And that cuts the argument a bit short, that the point's supposed to be that this isn't inevitable, it's not kind of hard written into the rules of the universe. That's an argument, might leave something to be desired, but, but our point is that saying someone is like a Cambodia is automatically enough to show that they are in the wrong, at least as far as this passage goes. Was there any truth to the claim that Cambodians practiced slavery but didn't practice caste? Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, slavery was pretty common pretty much everywhere around there, and common even in India itself. Uh, more on that in a special episode next week. One Last example of the bogeyman being wheeled on. This one may be the silliest of them all. This is one from the Buddhist tales again, the Jataka tales. Uh, all, all of these examples from the Buddhist texts, curiously. There's a reason for that, actually, but uh, we're not going to chat about that. Anyway, here's one of the tales reminding us, as the, they sometimes do, that women are unspeakably evil. And it goes like this. How often is a woman's mind like a shifty monkey's found? Or like the shade cast by a tree on height or depth around? 
How changeful too the purpose lodged within a woman's breast, like tire of wheel revolving swift without pause or rest. Whene'er, with due reflection, they look round and see their way to captivate some man of wealth and make of him their prey. Such simpletons with words so soft and smooth they captive lead, ere, as Cambodian groom with herbs will catch the fiercest steed. But if when looking round with care they fail to see their way to get possession of his wealth and make of him their prey, they drive him off as one that now has reached the furthest shore and cuts adrift the ferry boat he needeth nevermore. Like fierce devouring flame they hold him fast in their embrace, or sweep him off like stream in flood that hurries on apace. They court a man they hate as much as one they, they adore, e'en as a ship that hugs alike the near and further shore. They not to one or two belong, like open stalls they are, one might as soon catch wind with net as women held in sway. It goes on. A cynical reader might think that this is a a monk who's got not much to do with women trying to persuade men not to have much to do with women. But whatever you think of the passage, the way that they talk about the Cambodges is, is, is quite interesting, right? Cambodges aren't just a bogeyman. They're not just a symbol of evil. It's said that they're people who catch horses. And actually, if you go to the original, this translation's a bit of an old one, a bit funny, we get a bit more detail. It says that Cambodges take some pondweed, they soak it with honey, combining it with some other passages, I think. Uh, so you've got this, this pondweed, you, you've got it soaked in honey, then you place it in this sort of caged area. And then the Cambodians would wait for a wild horse, a strong one, to come in for a quick bite to eat. And then they would catch the horse. And here, maybe for the first time, we're hitting up against the real people behind the bogeyman image. Not that this is necessarily a very effective way of catching wild horses. I don't know if it would work. I mean, I know horses like honey, so maybe it would work. But in any case, the real Cambodians would probably know if it would work because the bit about Cambodians being horse masters, that's real. And that's the main thing they were known for. They had the finest war horses that could be had anywhere in the Indian world. And as we found in earlier episodes, India was often short of good war horses, strong enough to support your weight or pull a, a big chariot, fast enough to ride into battle. That sort of war horse only really came from the region where the Cambodians had their homeland. And we get these descriptions of these Cambodian horses. It's said that they had noses like bird beaks. Not really sure what that means. It said that they had coats the colour of a partridge. Not quite sure about that either. Partridges are all sorts of colours. Although, to be honest, it's, it's not clear what bird the original text is referring to. One translation says that the horses were the colour of parrots, which is fun, but I think a bit, a bit of a stretch. More likely, the text just meant that the horses from the Cambodia's lands were, were dappled. So these beautiful Cambodian war horses were everywhere in the stories. Right? They drew the chariots of heroes in the epics. And actually, the Cambodian warriors, the cavalry, fought in the epics too. The Cambodians were part of the great battle at the centre of the Mahabharata epic. And their king was there too. He was killed by Arjuna in, in the Mahabharata in, in, in one-to-one combat. The Cambodian forces were occasionally appealed to elsewhere too. In 
One of the latest stories, the Cambodians are supposed to be some of the men hired by Chinakya and Chandragupta Maurya in their battle to found the Mauryan Empire. And, and there's a chance that it's true. There's a chance that these Cambodians were going around being mercenaries. In Chanakya's book, in the Artashastra, we hear that the Cambodians were a republic. They were no longer ruled by one king alone, as, as had appeared in, in the epics. Instead, they were one of these sort of semi-democratic people. And these people were known for their warlike traits, known for being invincible. Combine that with the fact that they had the best war horses on land, and it might well have been that they hired themselves out as mercenaries to aspiring kings. They would have had the reputation. Sometimes being a bogeyman can help. But all of that just says it's not altogether unlikely that they were out there and part of regular Indian armies as mercenaries doesn't actually show that it happened. Let's zoom in a bit on where the Cambodians actually lived. There's a bit of dispute about it, but probably the ancient homeland of the Cambodians was to the, the southeast of the Hindu Kush, the, the, the mountain range that sort of sprouts off the Himalayas and sort of sweeps down southward to enclose that end of the Indian subcontinent. They may have actually lived a bit further north, higher into the mountains. Some people claim that their capital was in modern-day Kashmir, although there's actually not much more to that than a vague similarity of names. And in any case... The Cambodians may have started there, but they, they do seem to get around a bit. At one point, a text tells us that they are people from the Vindyas, right? People from um, that patchwork line of hills and mountains that separates North India from South. But through all of this, actually, we only see the Cambodians in the distance and in darkness. We don't really know exactly where they are. And we don't really know exactly how they live. They're, they're silent people. We never hear their voice. In the text, they were always at least half the bogeyman still, shambling onwards. And then, in the 10th century, the bogeyman speaks. And it happens in the last place in India you would expect, in Bengal, in the extreme east of India. There was a pillar there, a decorated one. It had just three lines of writing, and it said this. By him, whose ability in subduing the forces of his irresistible enemies and liberality in appreciating the merit of his suitors are sung by the Vidyadharas in celestial spheres by that sovereign of Gauda, by him who is descendant from Cambodian line, this temple, the beauty of the earth, was elected for Shiva, in the year 888. The year 888, by the way, we, we don't really know what year that is because we don't know kind of where they're starting counting from in this case. But here we've got the king of the Gaudas ruling in Bengal, right? A parlor king, but also a member of the Cambodia family. And dear listener, if you're confused, well, that only means that you've been listening. This should come as something of a shock.
The Pala emperors had ruled over the east of India for more than a hundred years, ruling over Bihar and Bengal. And as we've heard in this series, they often ruled much more than that. We've heard how they, they fought on and off with their mortal enemies, the Pratihara emperors of the west. They lost more often than they won in that battle, but they took advantage of every opportunity. Here's a very quick recap of the Pala Empire. Emperor Dharmapala had been the first to really establish the kingdom as an empire. He ruled all the way up to the imperial city, where he installed his puppet king. And he was followed by his son, Emperor Devapala, equally powerful, maybe even more so. He ruled the north of India with a firm grip until the middle of the 9th century. And then, well, after that, the empire gently goes to seed. The emperors who came immediately next seem to have got into a bit of squabble about succession. As usual, if that's true, then there was a cover-up and we can only guess based on the fact that emperors had very short rules and their brothers took over instead of their sons. But after this brief period of confusion, things quietened down a bit. And by the middle of the 9th century, the Pala Empire was being ruled clearly by one man, Vigrahapala. Now, Vigrahapala was a religious man. Like all his forefathers, he was, a, he was a Buddhist, though he was one who took part in quite a few ceremonies, as his advisors instructed him to. And he was so religious that he doesn't seem to have actually done anything much for the country, or at least so historians sometimes say. No inscriptions have actually come down to us from his time. He abdicated his throne, left the empire to his son, and went off to join the religious life, to be a monk. His son, the new emperor, was called Naryanapala. By this time, the Pala Empire had sort of shrunk a fair amount, although he still seems to have inherited much of Bihar and West Bengal, so most of East India. And a good chunk of Northeast India too, most likely. So he's still a major player on the world stage. But Naryanapala, like his father, was a religious man and doesn't seem to have got into fighting too much. Actually, let's just pause the recap for a moment. Can we have a, a quick chat about this idea of pacifist kings? It's actually pretty common when you read ancient Indian history to, to hear about them. And almost always these pacifist kings are Buddhists. That's an idea that goes all the way back to the greatest pacifist king of Indian history, Ashoka the Great, though his pacifism is actually rather exaggerated nowadays, I think. In fact, the pacifist tendencies of most Buddhist kings seem to be pretty exaggerated. I remember once reading an academic paper, I forget if I've mentioned it before. The paper was examining whether Buddhist societies were less violent than non-Buddhist ones. And it actually looked at the historical evidence for that and it found no good evidence that Buddhist societies were less violent. But it proceeded to try and explain why Buddhist societies were less violent anyway. If you think that Buddhist kings are the pacifists, well, Narayanapala bucks the trend. His whole family had been Buddhist, all of the Pala emperors, all the way back to the beginning. I mean, the dynasty's seal was packed with Buddhist imagery. It was uh, two deer facing towards a chakra, the, the, symbolizing the, the message of Buddha. But... Although Narayanapana's entire family had been Buddhist and he was head of what was a fairly Buddhist empire, he himself was not a Buddhist. He was a devotee of Shiva. 
He continued to sponsor Buddhist communities, but he also poured his money into Shaivite temples. He constructed one which, according to a text, was a thousand stories high and very roomy. It says something, I think, about the religious life in East India at this time, that an emperor could abdicate to a, a Buddhist, become a Buddhist monk and leave the empire to his devoutly Shaivite son. And before we go back to the story, there's another thing about these supposed pacifist kings. They're usually thought to not only be Buddhist, which I don't think is right, they're also assumed to be rather bad kings. Many a history book implies that some peaceful king was the cause of the downfall of their empire, that by not waging war and pushing back the boundaries of the empire, it must be that they were the cause of its collapse. In fact, that's a, a move, an influence that's made so often it's become casual, something which books just mention in a sentence as if it's obvious, as if it doesn't need any further justification. But more often than not, I'm not convinced. And I'm not convinced in this case, People seem to say sometimes that the Pala Empire collapsed because of these really rather peaceful emperors. And it's true that the Pala Empire did stop expanding and started shrinking a bit, most likely. But I don't see the evidence that it was because of a run of pacifist kings, partly because neither of these kings seems to have actually driven the empire down. The empire was still functioning pretty darn well. These kings were doing the difficult daily work of keeping the empire going, keeping the machinery of state grinding on. And if they left us no glorious reports of battles and lands conquered, and if we take that to be a sign that they were weak emperors, poor rulers, well, maybe that tells us more about us than it does about them. Anyway, rant over, sorry. Back to the Palas and the Cambodias. The pillar of the Cambodia king of Gauda is the first time we hear from the Cambodias themselves, as far as we can work out. And the king doesn't actually give his name, but we do know the names of the other kings in this line because we have another record from them. It's a copper plate. It's double-sided with uh, the Buddhist seal fixed on top. It's written in this fairly clean Sanskrit. No mletcha mletcha language. The record claims to be written by a Cambodia king, and this time it's got names. King Rajapala and his wife Bhagyadevi. And he passed the kingdom on to his son, King Narayanapala. And by now, the Pala Empire enthusiasts amongst you will be foaming at the mouth. Those are the names of Pala emperors. Even Emperor Rajapala's wife's name is correct. The bogeyman, the Cambodias, were they actually the Palas, the kings of Gauda, all along? Well, no. No, that's not what happened. The timing's all wrong. The order of names is all wrong. There's a different dynasty here. Not the Pala dynasty that ruled the Pala Empire. But a group of people who call themselves Pala also ruling in Bengal and claiming ancestry from the Cambodias. So these weren't the Pala emperors, but they did replace the Pala emperors in part of Bengal at least, carving out a little kingdom within the heartland of the Pala empire. So why on earth did they have the same names as the Pala emperors? Even the same name for their queen? That surely can't be a coincidence. I mean, 
True, there are plenty of kings around who call themselves something-something parlor. But getting the same names generation after generation and, and marrying a woman with the same name, that's just too much to put down to chance. Maybe there was a bit of dynastic identity theft going on here. Most likely, this is a line of Cambodia kings who are trying to seem legitimate by mimicking the parlor emperors who had gone before them. And that tells you something about just how closely the parlor emperors had become associated with power in this part of the world. They were the model of power to be imitated right down to the names. And actually, this little Cambodia kingdom wasn't alone. There were other kingdoms emerging, pushing through, emerging into the heartlands of the old Parler Empire, laying down roots there, and thriving by imitating the Parler emperors who came before. On the very edge of India, out beyond the huge delta where the Ganga and Brahmaputra rivers roll at last into sea, there's this, this rise, this, this line of small hills, and beyond them, parallel to them, taller hills. And these lines of hills rise until they become the mountain range that splits off the Indian subcontinent from Myanmar. And there, there was a man called Trilokya Chandra, uh, which means the moon of the three worlds or something like that. And, and he was setting up a kingdom. He was very much the new king on the block. His family came from a place called Rohitagiri which might mean something like Red Hill. And probably it was somewhere not too far away from the eastern edge of India. Probably uh, Old Moon of the Three Worlds was not setting up a kingdom too far from his ancestral homeland. He wasn't a big-time player. He wasn't building things that spanned across East India. He traced his dynasty not back to any, any god or any great hero, but only back two generations to his grandfather. He was also named after the moon, as was his father. In fact, all of the kings in this dynasty were named after the moons. But it was a short line of moon kings so far. And neither his father nor his grandfather seemed to have been anything more than minor kings at best. Even old moon of the three worlds himself seems to have been a, a, a minor king serving a slightly less minor king. He was a small guy's henchman, way out on the edge of the world. But King Moon of the Three Worlds was about to go into battle, and he was going to fight the Pala Emperor. And according to Moon of the Three Worlds' own inscriptions, at least, he soon had the Pala Emperor entirely in his hands, and he would have crushed him entirely, driven him down into the earth with his upraised sword, had the Pala Emperor not fallen before him in submission. Moon of the Three Worlds held back the killing blow. He refused to wrap chains around his enemy's feet or a noose around his neck. Or so say his inscriptions. And Moon of the Three Worlds did really carve out a bit of a kingdom on the edge of Bengal and, and down south a bit too, towards the delta, towards the sea. He carved out enough land and, and gained enough power to found a dynasty of moon kings. And his son... Sri Chandra, Lord Moon, he would take that kingdom and expand it, right, capturing the Pala Queen, the Empress, invading Assam and the Northeast, and really founding the beginnings of a significantly sized kingdom, maybe, who knows, even an empire. And 
these these guys, the the Moon Kings, the the Chandra Dynasty, they're just like the Cambodians. They're imitating the Palas who they're beating back. At the top of every Pala inscription, there's this Buddhist seal. We talked about it a bit earlier. You got the the two deer facing towards the wheel, and then I think the name of the emperor is almost always underneath that. Well, if you go and you look at any of the inscriptions of the Chandra Dynasty of the Moon Kings, you look at the top, and right there, it's the same seal. It's the same thing: two deer facing towards the chakra, the Buddhist symbol, and below that. The name of the the emperor or the king, although of course in this case it's not the Pala emperor, it's the Chandra king. In fact, the only real difference is that the seals of the Palas were sort of round, whereas the seals of the Chandra dynasty have a sort of pokey bit on top. But other than that, it's pretty much an exact copy. Once again. You got a small kingdom pushing through in the Pala Empire's heartlands and borrowing some in the trappings of the Pala Emperor, imitating them while stealing their power. So the picture is that the Pala Empire, once so powerful, was losing ground even in its heartland. That these small kingdoms were growing in power and dominance, doing the unthinkable, beating the old empire in battle even. But the story. Of the Pala Empire doesn't end there; it isn't over yet. The Pala Empire will strike back. It will turn the corner against these small kingdoms, and it will once again become the centre for political power in North India. And that's a story for another episode. Indeed, that's a story for another season altogether. Before we go. Let's catch up on what happened to the Cambodians. There's a rumor that they went to Southeast Asia. The story goes that there was a king of Delhi who got into a fight with one of his sons, and that the, the prince left the kingdom in shame. In fact, he left India altogether. By and by, he arrived in Southeast Asia, and there he drove out the local ruler and married a Naga woman. This is the the legendary snake creature. His new father-in-law did him a solid favour, and he he drank up a huge chunk of the ocean, and this exposed a new land for the prince to start a new country in, one that came to be called Cambodia, Cambodia, Cambodia. That's how the story goes. Although it's probably not got too much behind it, other than a similarity between names again. Actually, it's not even clear that the Cambodians of of early medieval Bengal. Had anything to do with the horse folk who lived in the mountains beyond the outer edge of India? Some historians think that the guys in Bengal were just people from Tibet who had pe- picked up that that ancient and fearful name Cambodia when they came out, came down from the Himalayas, and there's a bit of evidence for that. In India today, there are plenty of people around with the surname Kamboj or Kamboj, which, let's face it, is. Pretty darn badass. Some of the modern Cambodian folk trace their history back to Cambodia through the Cambodians of Bengal, all the way back to the Cambodia Mahajanapada of the northwest.、And、it seems, as far as I can tell, that that many historians tend to think of the evidence being against those claims. 
again, it's tracing the history in, in that thread. Or at least they think that these claims require a bit more support. Whether that's the case, I leave it up to you to decide. Every week we read something from the original sources. And actually there's a, a fair bit to choose from this week because the Chandra dynasty left us a fair few inscriptions. Maybe you'd consider them a minor dynasty, at least at the moment. But Sri Chandra, the, the most recent king that we mentioned, he alone has quite a lot of words left to us. So we're going to choose one of them. Uh, it's going to be one pretty much at random, which describes the story of the family, like these things usually do. The one I've chosen commemorates a gift of land, and it goes something like this. The blessed victor, the sole vessel of compassion, is to be given homage. And the law, that single light in the world, is victorious. By resorting to them, the entire eminent company of monks reaches the end of worldly existence. In this majestic line of Chandras, rulers of Rohitagiri, was one who, being like the full moon, was known to the world as the illustrious Purna Chandra. He was declared head of his lineage on image pedestals, on new chisel-carved inscriptions, on victory columns, and on copper plates. His son, Suvana Chandra, was a follower of the Buddha and was celebrated as one who had been born into the family of the divine moon, which devoutly carries in its curve the Buddha's hair-birth story in the form of a mark whose rays are the source of Soma. This is pretty cool. It's a reference to one of the Jataka tales, the, the tales of Buddha's former life. And in this tale, he was born as a hare. And, and of course, his image gets painted on the moon, which is why when you look at the moon today, there's an image of a hare there. Hare as in rabbit-like thing, of course, not hair on your head. Anyway, back to the inscription. His son, Suvana Chandra, was a follower of the Buddha and was celebrated as one who had been born into the family of the divine moon which devotedly carries in its curve the Buddha's hair-birth story in the form of a mark and whose rays are the source of Soma. It is said that on the day of the new moon, his mother had a pregnancy-induced longing to see the moon's orb rising, and she was gratified by the birth of a golden Chandra. He was given the name Suvana Chandra. So Su Suvana Chandra means golden moon, and his, his mother supposedly saw a golden moon. Anyway, his son... Trilokya Chandra, by whom both families were purified, was known in the three worlds for his virtues, which were the refuge of the well-born and the guests of the four quarters. He, who was, like, who was the like of Dilipa, was king on the island that has the distinguishing name Chandra, and was the support of the power that had bloomed under the regal canopy of the king of Harikela. As Jyotsna to the moon, Sachi to Jishnu, Gauri Tahara and Sri Tahara, Sri Kanachana, who was as lovely as gold, was beloved to him whose dominion was respected. The name of his queen. Knowledgeable in affairs of state and possessed of Indra's majesty, he begat by her, at a moment auspicious by association with the Raja Yoga, Sri Chandra, a son like the moon, in whom the marks of a king were pointed out by astrologers. Having caused the earth to be adorned by a single canopy, he who was proof against the influence of fools and whose enemies were imprisoned perfumed the faces of the quarters with his glory. 
Now, from the glorious headquarters established at mighty Vikramapura, he, a follower of Buddha, a great lord, chief among learned men, king of kings, the illustrious king Sri Chandra, in good health, contemplates at the feet of the king of kings, illustrious king Trilokya Chandra. With regard to 10 patakas of land in Turadisa of the Ganagiri locality, and here, let's just skip a bit. The inscriptions describing the land that's going to be gifted and the rights and responsibilities that go along with it. So it is to be approved by you all. Future kings too are to empathise with and maintain this gift through respect for the reward that ensues from a gift of land and from fear of the fall into hell that lies in plundering it. The inhabitants and cultivators of the land, obedient to command, must meet the payments of the correct dues. Further, there are verses in praise of the Dharma on this subject. Both receiver and donor of the land are virtuous and will surely go to heaven. The giver of land delights in heaven for 60,000 years. Anyone who refuses an offer of land or permits misappropriation of land spends that long in hell. He who takes back land that he or someone else has given will be tormented as a worm in excrement along with his ancestors. Ouch. Land has been donated by many kings from Sagaran. He who owns land has its reward. For collecting that a man's life and riches are as transient as a drop of water on a lotus petal, and heeding that all that has been said above, men should not ruin the renown of others. Drawn up by the chief supervisor of boundaries and then examined by the chief record keeper on the 15th day of Magasira in the 46th regnal year of the illustrious king Sri Chandra. And that's it for this episode. In fact, that's it for the regular part of this season. It's been a long season. We've had more regular episodes than in any of the other seasons, by far. For those who have been following along as the episodes come out, you might have noticed there were a couple of big gaps in the season too. In a couple of cases, it was more than a month between episodes. But we're back now to every week, which is good news. And over the coming weeks, we're going to be releasing a bunch of special episodes. We're going to be doing a special episode on slaves that's coming up next. There are other ones on courtesans, on, on poets and polyandrists and, and much more. We're going to have a substantial mini-series on the Empire of the South, the Rashtrakutas. Really looking forward to that one. Another one on some of the Chaulokyas. I'm really excited to get into the Kalingas in the east of India. And in between, there'll be a few special episodes added to the other series. So we've got an audio guide to Sanchi that's written and, and just being recorded. There's an awful lot coming up that I'm really looking forward to. And all of it should now be on a regular basis. I hope you have been enjoying the season and, and the series and if you have been enjoying it, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. You can get details for that on the website. There's a link in the description. Although, of course, you know, there's so much need just around your area that you, you might just consider donating to, to people who, who need your help right now. Anyway, wherever you are, I hope you're doing well. I hope you're finding joy in life. And until next week, take care.